For January 2nd, 2012, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 183, a prize anyone can edit. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Happy New Year! Yay! It's uh, it's 2012, uh, and we're coming at you, even though it is New Year's Day, uh, with new new uh, content. Not like those other podcasts that you know sling together a uh, what a, a best of a clip show on New Year's Eve. <laughs> we are giving you actually, honest to God, fresh steaming pile of podcast here. Speaking of fresh steaming piles, remember six months ago when we were talking about Iron Man? <laughs> Let's roll the footage. <laughs> the thing about Iron Man is that it's really about that new Kesha song that just came out. <laughs> that would be very fun, is if we reenacted uh, you know, our favorite moments from the podcast, but just from memory, without actually having transcripts. If, if we were so technically inept that we couldn't loop back in recorded footage, we just had to like print it out and read it on scripts right or, or we had to we had to ourselves sort of remember the conversations that we think we had uh, <laughs> at the time well uh from los angeles california i am uh matt rather here with the panel to overthink uh all kinds of things we're going to talk a little bit about girl with dragon tattoo we're going to talk a little bit about uh we're going we're gonna to kind of overthink uh overthinking which is something we do occasionally when, when as jordan used to say gaze into the navel long enough and the navel starts gazing into you and um and uh, we'll get to all that. But first, uh, New Year's pop culture resolutions. Uh, we do, we've done this the last couple of years, and so it's, uh, it's interesting kind of to see. So if you have a report from the resolution that you gave last year, if you even remember what it is, uh, <laughs> it, if, you, if you don't remember what it is, I guess that says something in itself. But if you have a report from uh, how your resolution went, uh, and if you have a new one for 2012, let's, uh, let's hear it. First in the alphabet is Peter Fenzel. Hey! Happy uh, New so Year, I, <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm, I'm a little bit hoarse. I'm a little bit tired. Uh, my first New Year spent in Central Time this time around, so it's very exciting. So it's, I've still got a little bit. I've got about 45 minutes of jet lag if you calculate the latitude and the distances and whatnot. Uh, yeah, so yeah. But, uh, but New Year's resolutions and pop culture revolutions. So I did not come through on my promise to the listeners last year, which was to write about Lady Gaga at some point this year, which I did not do, um, which I apologize for. A lot of that was because of a prolonged hiatus from writing. A lot of it was because her work surpasseth my cap- capability to dissect or describe. I'm going to stick with that. Um, but you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep it on. I'm going to let that ride. I'm going to like put that on the backlog and still mark it as my as my 2011 resolution, like as yet uncomplete. And we'll continue to stack up unfinished resolutions until I can clear them. Maybe I'll get them all done in like 2015. But at any rate, uh, my pop culture resolution for the coming year, and this is a resolution I want to hear other people's thoughts about too, uh, in, in either a longer discussion here or in the comments, is I want to spend more time with pop culture that I like and less time with pop culture that I don't. Uh, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't want to – we're in a situation now where we really get to pick and choose the kind of stuff that we get to see. And I think maybe the first step for me in that is this might be the, finally the year where I get Netflix. 
and I actually start you know choosing movies to watch that I that I really enjoy, and I start making entertainment decisions based not off what I can get for free in whatever place at whatever time. But in fact, uh, the things that we want to get in this delivery-oriented opportunity. Nothing weird has happened with Netflix in the past year, right? Like it's exactly the same as it's always been. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't missed out. They've they've lost, you know, 80% of their subscriber base. No, not that much. Like 40% of their subscriber base because they raised the price on on, uh, certain of their services. So so they're on the – Jean-Claude Van Damme movie seems to be vastly improving. Oh, good, good. That's important. And their deal, so th- their yeah. deal with stars, which provided a lot of their sort of popular American movies, was uh, uh, I think is expiring in 2012, and and stars doesn't seem inclined to renew it. But uh, if you are into foreign films, Netflix is the place is the place to go. No, I mean they're a great service, and I love them. Okay, fair enough. I was going to join that Quickster thing that they had. Is that still around? <laughs> are, are, are you, uh, <laughs> you're being facetious aren't you pete i am i just i just got an e-reader uh for the first time and so i, I do like holding the physical man you know the, the last generation of technology in my hand so that i can uh now people are reading off of clouds i hear now right that's what's going on yeah, <laughs> like you stare, you stare at the cloud and it tells you the story of the girl with the dragon tattoo uh, why would I want to read that when I could read Too Close to Miss by John Parrish, which is an excellent suspenseful novel that you can buy on Kindle or, or Barnes & Noble Nook? Yay! <laughs> Your check is in the mail. Excellent. So yeah, so that's my, that's my resolution, is spend more time with pop culture that I like, and I'm going to pile into that to do more reading on, on my Nook, uh, which I think, and, and to get Netflix, to take advantage of these platforms that I've been uh, reluctant to, to take advantage of because of my curmudgeon elitism, and to actually start doing the stuff that uh, I say that I want to do rather than continuing to watch video game, uh, video game channels all the time, which is fine, but is getting a little bit boring. Excellent. Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Happy 2012, okay. Mark. I, I'm starting this year off hungover. I'm, it, they can only go up from here. Um, so like Pete, I also have to report on a failure on, to, to convert on one of last year's resolutions, which I think was to get a live show uh, done in New York City. Um, so again, you're rolling that one over into the 2012 list of things to get done. Um, so stay tuned for that, hopefully. Um, but, uh, you know, we did, you know, we still continue to do the Geek Week live show thing. I think we'll be coming back to you in the Boston area uh, in 2012, as it did in 2010 and 2011. Um, so there's that. And also, uh, here's something that I, um, I, I plan to do for 2011. I really want to get this done this year is to go back uh, to my face, my darkest fears and watch Terminator Salvation again. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, um, I profoundly dislike this movie as much as I like the rest of the Terminator uh, franchise. And um, I, I feel like I need to go back. I need, I need to confront uh, confront this horrible beast um, and sort of give it the proper takedown treatment that it deserves. And maybe something along the lines of the red letter media, uh, you know, Star Wars, uh, just utter dismantlings. And I think uh, sort of you know doing that, it will be in a way a terminating, purging my uh my my residual anger and i can you know kind of finally, finally move on i think it's is it time for me to move on guys i think it's time for I me to move on i think it's time for you to move on you know i say nurse that grudge as long as you can <laughs> <laughs> mark i've of, i've often talked a little bit about doing like one person uh overviews where we just like go into the deep dark recesses of our souls <laughs> in a relation and the way i always posit it to people is that i'm one of these days i want to get a bottle of wine and a copy of Love Actually, and just like do an increasingly <laughs> drunk commentary of the whole movie. Uh, and if I'll do that, if you do the Terminator thing, how about that? If it's it's a deal. It's a blood okay. pack. <laughs> All right, excellent. Good, good. 
Pete, could I get you to do uh, Love Actually and um, Apocalypse Now in that one sitting? <laughs> in oh one sitting, yeah. yeah. I really, yeah. I would like to, to listen to that over and over. I think. Hey, We're gonna need, yeah. who's that from uh, <laughs> just across in the other room in my apartment? Because uh, he's visiting me for New Year's. It's Josh McNeil. Hello. Hi, Josh. LA is not as great as Matt continues to claim on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty nice and all, but um, there's still the you know CVSs and stuff. Hey, here. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make you dinner tonight. You're gonna go hungry. No. <laughs> um, New Year's resolution. So I also have to admit a failure, and my failure is to even remember what my resolution was last year. Um, so chances are I didn't do it because I don't remember what it was. But this year, uh, I'm actually going the opposite tack from Pete. Uh, I've realized that um, the uh, the medium is dictating the message a little too bit, bit too much in my life. Like there are a couple books that I haven't read that I wanted to read just because they're not on Kindle. Um, and there are a couple of shows that I'd like to see that aren't on Hulu or on Netflix. Uh, so I'm going to try to bust out a little bit. I, d- I dislike having, uh, having those few sort of companies have that much control over what I'm reading and seeing. So I'm going to, you know, try to branch out and find, you know, the last surviving video store in Philadelphia and watch some movies that I couldn't watch, uh, via Netflix. And, uh, I might go to, you know, a bookstore again and see what those are like and visit those estranged people and bring some light into their lives by purchasing physical paper. I have some bad news for you, Josh, about what's been going on in the last year. They, 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 they might cancel community. No, I mean, uh, oh, no, no, no. they're getting rid of the bookstores. They decided they're not going to do them anymore. So. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> it's okay. I, I will just I'll just walk the streets and read graffiti, um, just something that's not you know digitally um, inked on a screen in front of me. Can you make a promise to us though? If you talk about individual arts of that sort, can you refer to each one as a graffito? Certainly. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, John Parrish next in the alphabet. Happy New Year. Happy. Happy New Year! How y'all doing? Uh, I I feel sorry for those of you who are podcasting hungover, as I am podcasting very slightly buzzed. I I had a couple beers before dinner. I'm having a beer with dinner as we speak, and I I may crack open one more over the course of the podcast. So, you know, it's not a problem if I can still go to work in the morning. So, New Year's resolutions. So, I think I've failed even worse than... McNeil has in that I don't think I even made a pop culture resolution last year. Did I? Was I on this podcast this time last year? I I forget. I honestly don't remember. So let's go. Let's go back and reenact what you might have said. Were you on the podcast for this year? <laughs> blue, I'm, I'm, I'm John Parrish. I'm going to say something that's kind of smart but a little bit disdainful about pop culture, which I claim to Wow, John, that was a, a great clip. <laughs> yeah, I know, pretty good, pretty, definitely pretty good. Well, I definitely was disdainful of pop culture in 2011. So, to this point, uh, you know, I, I just for my own sake, just to just to keep pace with you know what's going on in in the pop culture landscape, and also as part of my my efforts to continue to help grow the site, I am going to try watching at least one number one TV show uh, in 2012. So whether that's Two Broke Girls or 
Big Bang Theory or, you know, Two and a Half Men or Two Stupid Dogs or whatever is number one <laughs> on the uh, whatever's number one on the Nielsen ratings. I will watch a couple episodes of that just so I can be acquainted with it, just so I can know what's going on. Because really, I think the highest I get in the in the Nielsen TV ratings is Modern Family. And even that I don't watch religiously, and even that I don't think ranks it, it well, but not all that well. So some hit drama or some hit sitcom, I'm going to watch it and maybe write about it, maybe just bury my head in my hands, but I will stay apprised of what's going on in the real world. Nice. Oh, you're going well, you know, go to the a- trenches where there are laugh tracks on TV. Good luck with that. Yes, exactly. And we're, we're the, we're the three beat structure, the setup, setup, gag, setup, setup, gag, uh, rhythm is still alive and well. Well, a, a poll of our readers a couple months back, um, overwhelmingly wanted us to watch the big bang theory, um, mm-hmm. over anything else. So I would, I would recommend that one. I've watched a couple episodes, but have not watched enough to really form a full opinion. Which none of us followed through on, so I... No, I watched, I watched it too. I watched a bunch of episodes similar to Josh, but it's a lot to think about. And I actually also talked to some of our guest writers about getting some material up about it. It's an interesting show to put together. It's, it's a tough one. Definitely a tough one. Um, because it's so whimsical <laughs> and like pretends that so much information. So, But anyway, I'll let you answer your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a new no, year. Was, I'll try to stop that. Was, that was the beginning and end of the question. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, excellent. Jordan Stokes is in Japan. Hey, Jordan. How's it going? How are things in the land of the, the rising sun? Yeah, it's, it's a lot, you know, I thought that you were going to ask me how Japan is different from America. And I was going to say that the sun shines, the sun shines so much brighter here. Uh, being That's a time zone joke for, uh, for all our loyal fans. <laughs> Uh, were you there? Were you there for the earthquake, Jordan? Is everybody okay? I, you know, I think the, there was an earthquake um, yesterday that we were on the train and did not notice because we were on the train. Cool. It was pretty minor. This one, from what I heard, but I, I don't know. Oh wait, that, there actually was an earthquake in Japan yesterday. This wasn't another like a joke about the passage of time. No, no, no. There was a 7.0 earthquake in Japan. Uh, at, this will have been on Saturday. So nothing. Not, I haven't heard of any major structural damage, but I didn't want any of our readers who heard that Jordan was in Japan, who would probably well actually us in, in terms of asking about seismic activity below his feet. Uh, to ha- I didn't want them to be neglected in their desire to know about his, uh, his Richter scale oriented activities. Which now, usually now, I feel, what? Now, now I kind of feel bad for saying, oh, it was nothing because like 7.5 is not a totally nothing quake. But, uh, you know, from where I was standing, it was nothing. There well, may have the been another yeah. Japan that got it hard. Well, they, they, they have a certain quality of stoicism over there. I don't know if you've heard about it. But uh, they, they tend to keep calm and carry on. So, as it were. Anyway, I interrupted. I'm sorry. I will return to my geolo- geolo- U.S. Geological Survey Station on this side of the podcast. And you guys can go ahead talking about pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jordan, how is the pop culture in Japan different from the pop culture in the United States? (laughs) I'll tell you, it's in Japanese, which makes it fairly difficult to understand if you don't speak that language. Um, I watched, there's a really interesting TV show that I watched that they do on uh, New Year's Eve, which is kind of like a big battle of the bands thing with um, like a, a male 
side and a female side and they go back and forth and at the end of the night everyone votes and like either men or women uh singers win for the year and what's interesting about it is that like i can imagine someone doing this show in america but it would be all top of the pop stuff and here like the, the age groups were really really mixed so you had dance pop and then you had like japanese tony bennett and, uh, and, you know, Japanese, uh, I don't know what the, uh, who exactly I'm trying to, to pull out here. But yeah, Tony Bennett will stand in. A lot of singers like that. And it's a very weird disjunction. So I, I don't know quite what to think about that, but that was the strangest Japanese pop culture thing I noticed this trip. Uh, well, excellent. Why don't you, uh, why don't you pledge your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor towards a, uh, you know, a pop culture project for the coming year? Yeah, I want to be excited by a rock band. That hasn't happened to me for a long time. And I mean, I mean specifically excited by a rock band that I've never heard of before. To listen to an album cold and think, wow, these guys are really good. I wonder what else they've put out. Last time I can remember that happening for me is in 2005 or maybe 2006 when I first uh, came across Mastodon. It's been a, a rock drought since then. So, you know, please, listeners recommend stuff in the uh in, in in the comments for me to listen to please be charitable and assume that i've heard of the rolling stones and whatnot right like this should be a band that's come out in the past couple of years that isn't all over the place quite yet and is totally totally sweet there's ideally this, ideally when you get bieber who's doing some really amazing work right now <laughs> <laughs> also listeners ideally when you're making this recommendation call our number 203-285-6401 while you're backstage listening to this band and say hey jordan you know that new sound you've been looking for well listen to this <laughs> now please please everybody for now from now on call in and leave those messages <laughs> rock music or not any pop culture you're excited about right like if you're uh, if you're at a live comedy show if you're uh if you're like watching a puppeteer in the park or something like that call in do if, your you're, best. if your radiator is rattling yeah, do you address that one guy from Back to the Future impression and hold up the phone to whatever sound it might be? <laughs> My uh, mine is going to be I, I want to multitask less when uh, when I'm watching, uh, especially television shows and movies that I like at home, because I rarely do it without the laptop in my lap. And, I, you know, and I'm doing the thing that we all do that, like, you know, IMDBing while I watch because you see someone and it's like, oh, I wonder what that actor's been in before. And then, then you go in and then you like you look up and some, you know, glorious sequence of, of shots has passed by or some, you know, you miss some kind of great bit of dialogue or plot point or, or uh, uh, something like that. And, I ju- you know, I just think that, like, the... Uh, sustained attention is like the the real commodity of scarcity in the you know is going to be in the coming year for me and so i want to bring that a little more to um you know to watching and listening to the things that i that i want to watch and listen to and not just kind of you know not just kind of plow through in that like distracted haze that that you know you get and and like even worse it'll be even worse if i buy a um if i buy a uh uh Oh God! You should see what just happened in this television show that I'm watching. No, um, <laughs> uh, if I buy an iPad this year, which I which I may do, I think this uh, this tendency will will only be will only be worse. I don't know. Do you find that your like watching experience is um, 
is improved by having some kind of second screen there to to uh, uh, you know to like look up things and kind of do like meta meta textual uh, type things while you're watching. I'm not sure that my experience is improved, but yet I do that, and there's a reason I do that, and apparently I enjoy doing that. So like it, I don't know that it's necessarily good for the show or not, but like there is some call to do it. And I, apparently I'm not alone in this. So like that may just be the way we're going, you know, two years from now, two years from now, we'll be listening to the mini tunes from demolition man. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'd say that I like to have my phone with me when I'm watching when I'm, so I have a, a, computer in my office and then i have a couch with a tv right and the tv is this old machine we used to use to watch moving pictures uh and so when i go over to the tv um i I will take my phone with me so i can look up essential information but when i'm multitasking and watching a movie on my computer while i'm on wikipedia or what have you i feel like it really is detrimental to taking in the complexity of the things that are going on on screen and auditorially Right, like I want to be able to get information that's nagging at me, but there's an usually enough entertainment's usually dense enough that you don't need uh, a full immersion in the vortex, right? As as Ezra Pound would put it, no, the the full you know resonant traditional and discursive environment around the movie doesn't have to ensconce you for every moment that you're watching it like velvet, like George Costanza, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I think it matters a lot whether it's your first exposure to the movie or not, you know. Although, first, I will say that it's only movies and TV where this is even an issue, right? Like, no one would be like, man, yesterday I was reading a book and, uh, and like, looking up stuff on the phone at the same time, and I really didn't get much out of the book. Like, you can't do that, right? But uh, movies, and you wouldn't do it with a video game either. It just isn't possible. Well, yeah, because your, uh, hands, your hands are, are busy in a video game, right? <laughs> like, you yeah, check your and, email during a cutscene, right? But well, I don't know. I've, I've watched TV and played video games at the same time. Like, How many TVs do you have? <laughs> How do you do that? Uh, well, as Pete sort of remarked, TV is often watched on things other than TV these days, like Hulu on a laptop. Um, I don't know. Skyrim's really big. You can watch like an entire episode of Modern Family like walking around. Um, do they have items in Skyrim where you can actually watch TV like in the items? Like you can carry around a shield that's always playing. Like everybody loves Raymond, and you just no, but like watch like it. Like books inside of Skyrim, right? Oh, really? Like you can stop and pick up a book and read like hundreds of pages. They're uh, like they're like six pages. Yeah, so like they're, six, yeah, they're exactly. full length for you know today's teenagers. Do they have any like any like Boston crime thrillers by daring and brash independent thriller writers like John Carriage, <laughs> writer of Too Close to Miss, available on Kindle and Barnes Noble Nook? He, we, we need to, we need to talk about the affiliate agreement because there's only so many times in 24 hours that you can, you can catch. look. Pop, Papa needs to buy himself some diet root beers. All right, so I'm getting those residual checks. All right, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, actually, you were saying that you can't do this with books, and you're mentioning the Kindle in the Nook. Like you, you can now. There's sort of like in in the book you're reading. There's now a device to look up. I mean, right now it's mostly used to look up vocab words you don't know. But you know, there's now a browser built right into the to the book you're reading. So I think you're going to be seeing more and more of that. Yeah, but one of the cool things that I 
used to spend a little bit of time on on the internet before it became all populated by normal stuff, back when the internet was like a, an elephant graveyard of crazy obsessions, as opposed to like a giant porn receptacle with everybody's vacation pictures and an elephant graveyard of everybody's obsessions, uh, is there used to be somebody, and I, I mentioned it just now, um, vorticism is an early 20th century literary movement that is, is the idea that all ideas that exist in our, in our culture and poetry, they all kind of swirl around and interact with each other. Um, and it's it's primarily an aesthetic, poetic uh, philosophy of, of of aesthetics and whatnot. Um, but somebody had established something that they called the hyper vortex, right? Um, and you could actually actually I found it here. I'll put it in the in the further reading in the show notes, um, where you just have like live citations to everything in a particular poem, so that you can click around constantly to all of the different histories and and glossaries and and other derivative works and other things that have inspired it and all this other stuff, so that you could really explore a particular piece. Of course, that's what Wikipedia is, right? Except that it takes you on this long trip that always ends with like Obelix the Tormentor from Yu-Gi-Oh or something insane like that. Um, when you started out reading about William Carlos Williams, who apparently can summon Exodia, who knew? It's crazy. The world is a crazy. A friend, of mine, a friend of mine did something like that with the entire lyrics to the Humpty Dance. So if you <laughs> if you check out www.loopedid.com, as in I use a word that don't mean nothing, like loopedid, as in that loopedid, uh, it's uh, you know my my friend uh, Ted O'Connor still has that uh, still has that site registered, and you can get pretty discursive hypertexts on the meaning of most of the most of the words within that song. So, so yeah, that's that's the thing. And then Wikipedia has sort of obviously taken that over. It would be really kind of interesting and also kind of damning if Wikipedia kept track of your vectors through Wikispace. You know, like Pete, Pete says that uh, he ends up on a Yu-Gi-Oh card. And I agree that if you were to go, like, truly random, you probably would end up on a Yu-Gi-Oh card because there are so many of them in Wikipedia. <laughs> but, like, that's, that's not where I tend to end up. And I wonder if maybe it's revealing more about Pete than it is revealing about Wikipedia. This is this is probably true. Although, to be fair, I do think that they've consolidated a lot of the sprawling uh, stuff related in particular to anime properties, which had just huge, voluminous catalogs of information on Wikipedia. And I think that, that people have been cracking down on that in the effort to kind of make it more mainstream appealing, which is unfortunate because it really showed – it was like all classical Latin advanced mathematics and like Dragon Ball Z, which was like awesome. That's great. That's perfect. But now it's yeah, got all the towns that people live in and like Sandals Jamaica has a page put together by its PR department and it's just silly. <laughs> so. I always thought that was the, like the non-notable thing in Wikipedia is like when you have an article that's like you know 20 pages long about uh one like a one-shot villain on an anime on, on like Yu-Gi-Oh or whatever right yeah like yeah, yeah. clearly that is notable the fact that it exists is evidence of its notability if it wasn't notable no one would have bothered to write this um, right. but it's kind of sad that i don't know um more prescriptive heads won out in that conversation well so well, another another internet friend of mine uh Leonard Pierce, who's who's a writer in his own right and also a, a podcaster, uh, used to play this game on his blog, which was pick two pick two articles, uh, one about something trivial and one about something relatively germane, and the trivial one has to be longer than the uh, than the first one. So, for instance, you know, or the, so for instance, the Roman Empire versus the Empire of Mankind as it exists in the Warhammer 40k universe. <laughs> it, it, right, it, right. Or, you know, 
Aliens, the concept, and Aliens, the Xenomorph from the Alien series with, you know, all the spinoffs of, like, Predator vs. Aliens, you know, the time those aliens showed up in, uh, what's it called, uh, Stormwatch, etc. Mm, interesting. Uh, I want to call that the Wiccanthropic Principle. Like, the, the principle that like, that, like, a Wikipedia page is notable by virtue of our observing it, and if it were not notable, then we would not be here to observe it, is, like, the strong Wiccanthropic principle. I thought there was going to be... I thought, the, I thought the, the joke was that it was, like, the Wiccanthropic principle. It's the Wiccanthropic principle. Yes, yes. And then there's the Wiki Wiki Wild, Wiki Wild Wild Wiccanthropic principle, which involves a giant mechanical spider. <laughs> yes. It's, uh... I thought there was going to be like a second step to that game. So you have to start with like the Empire of Mankind and the Roman Empire and then in as few steps as possible navigate by link clicks to like a common ground article between them. Mm-hmm. That that I think is a good logical derivative from the game. So we should like folks listening, if you want to play this in the comments, by all means. So like pick two Pick two similar-sounding topics, but completely unrelated, and then navigate between them using uh, using Wiki Wikipedia links, and we will uh, give you a prize of some variety for interesting. I, I don't I don't know. I shouldn't promise. <laughs> Just of some variety. Just keep it. You may you may win a, a special coupon to purchase at full price. Too close to miss by John Parrish. You'll get a prize, but it's a prize anyone can edit. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Uh, well, Jordan is uh, is taken off into the uh, Japanese night. Um, he has, you know, crime to fight or something, something like that. Uh, more, more anime to watch. But we, uh, we who remain, we few, we happy few, we band of of brothers. We are going to talk about uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, none of us having seen the movie, except except for one of us. And and who is it? What up? What up? <laughs> <laughs> It's my time now. (laughs) Uh, Well, I, you know, not having seen the movie, I've I've read the three books of the, you know, of what I guess was a Plan Ten in the uh, in the Millennium series, and I saw the Swedish uh, made-for-TV movie that became the the first theatrical uh, movie. A, a, of girl with the dragon tattoo, or the Swedish title "Men Who Hate Women," uh, and the uh, but I have not yet seen the David the David Fincher film. Though there's, I, it feels like I've been doing nothing but reading reading press about it. So I kind of don't know how to frame the conversation. I guess that's my first question to you, John. How ought we uh, to to frame the conversation? Uh, you know about this this film that that none of us but you have seen. <laughs> that's that's a weird question. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say some things and act as if I'm answering it. So first off, uh, if you if you've read the books, you already have a pretty good sense of the movie because the the Fincher movie is very faithful to the the first novel. It uh, it incorporates a lot of the details, including the the dizzying array of Swedish names and familial relations. Uh, a lot of the details surrounding. Uh, surrounding, you know, the protagonist, Mikhail Blomquist and Lisbeth Salander. And uh, it, to my money, it does a better job than the original author, Stieg Larsson, did of editing them together into a dramatic and entertaining format. 
Uh, Larson's book was, and I think this is the consensus, was a little dense and a little unwieldy and could have benefited from one more pass with the editor. And, of course, Stieg Larson tragically uh, tragically died at a very young age. So, I mean, the, the book wasn't, I, 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 my understanding is it wasn't completely... Uh, revised as many times as it could have been before before being released, but it's immensely successful. So hey, you know it works. But if you're if you're familiar with the book, you're familiar with the the movie itself. So if you can speak intelligently to the book, you can speak intelligently to some of the subjects that the movie presents. Sure, uh, I, he fell prey to the Larson curse, right? He and Jonathan Larson. Oh no, that's yeah, terrible. I was going to say, are they, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> is is there just an entire sentence that just goes, "The girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl with the dragon tattoo, dragon tattoo, dragon tattoo, dragon tattoo." <laughs> that's. Uh, I mean, it's funny. We actually just passed the season of the year when uh, Rent by Jonathan Larson, who also was was uh, who died uh, of a terrible illness, tragic, uh, tragically young. Um, uh, you know that. The, like that it takes place and so i i think pete uh my resolution is that i'm not gonna pay i'm not, I'm not gonna, gonna pay <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna pay <laughs> harvey oh. you're back. <laughs> uh, you thought you were rid of me for 2012 didn't you <laughs> Um, what is the, I mean, does this work is because, you know, I remember there were a lot of like, there are a lot of cousins to remember. There are a lot of like, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, family relationships in the, um, what is it? Sanger, Sanger family. The Vanger, the Vanger. And it is, it is very confusing. And the movie sort of lampshades that there's a, there's a scene early on where, uh, Blomquist is being sort of shown around the island by uh, Henrik Wanger, who has you know retained him to investigate. So I'm, I'm presuming that everyone on the podcast, just like everyone else in the world, has has read the novel or is at least familiar enough with the novel to be cool with what we discuss. So Blomquist is retained by Wanger to investigate his granddaughter's disappearance 40 years ago, and he's sort of being shown around the island. And said now you know. Now, my brother's son lives in this house, and my brother and my brother's cousin lives in this house, and he's not talking to him, and she's not talking to him, and he's not talking to her. And the, and the movie sort of lampshades how confusing all that is. Like, uh, Daniel Craig is standing there furiously taking notes, and he says, this is, this is all a little, uh, this is a little much. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. So they, they do acknowledge that. Fortunately, with, you know, with Hollywood logic, uh, if you recognize an actor or actress, they are probably important. So that's that's a handy stand in for people you should be keeping track of. Does that scale with your level of familiarity with the property and or the like lesser actors of Hollywood? Like if you're a hardcore (laughs) fan, should you watch out for Treat Williams? Like, does he show up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, when I say recognize, I don't necessarily mean know the name of. Like, Jolie Richardson has a minor role in the movie, and I don't expect everyone to be intimately familiar with Jolie Richardson's work. But if you watch more than one movie a year, you'll be like, oh, I know her. She was in, you know, something I saw once, like The Patriot. She was in The Patriot. Yeah, she was in The Patriot. I was going to say, could you please restate the name Jolie Richardson in terms of that person from that thing? (laughs) Because that's how we'd all understand it. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, she she was Mel Gibson's love interest in The Patriot. So you'll be like, oh yeah, that's her. She was from a thing. I'm glad she's in this movie. And then you, you, that'll, that's a hook to hang on. And I think that's that's a, a large part of what this is. When when I first heard it was being adapted for, I guess, an American or English speaking audience, my presumption was always that they would translate the location to America as well. And I was thinking like, well, you know, I guess you could kind of do it with like some 
you know, some upstate New York or something, right? Yeah. Or like some island off the coast of Massachusetts, like some one of the weird like uh, Channel Islands or something where, you know, it's this reclusive industrialist family. And there's this muckraking Boston reporter who's out of a job and he gets hired to investigate this weird family. And, you know, everyone speaks with, you know, very thick Kennedy accents and there's murder and incest and whatnot. And and, and that could have worked, I think. But they decided to quickly point out. They did that for the last major Swedish import movie, which is uh, Let the Right One In, right? When they uh, created the English language version of it, uh, they changed the uh, the title of it. Um, the name of it is escaping me right now, but they uh, uh, they said let, it in America, right? Let Me In was the American title. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. I've seen the Swedish version. I haven't seen the American version. But if they if they updated it to America, okay. So The Swedish version is so good, though. It's It's hard to imagine the American version being any kind of improvement on it. Right, like, does it have brief, brief nudity in adult situations? Because that's <laughs> that's what I'm looking for when it comes. To, uh, is is going to be like the Americanized Akira movie where they make it about like adults during September 11th for no reason? Oh, <laughs> I um, won't get into that. Jordan left. We're not talking about Japan anymore. Yeah. I'll let it go. Hey, speaking <laughs> speaking of a hook to hang on, does I I I gather that the film does not shy away from any of the graphic, deplorable violence of the. Uh, uh, of the Stieg Larsson novels. No, it does not, which was actually surprising to me. And this is one of the things I wanted to talk about. So those of you who've read the novel know that there are a couple of, yeah, here we get into touchy subject, a couple of rape scenes in the novel. And the movie does in fact depict those pretty faithfully. And one of the things that sort of caught my critical eye during this point was that a, Fincher goes about as far as he can in depicting the rape scene without crossing the line from R to NC-17. Like, it, you know, there's... I mean, we don't see anything that would actually be pornographic, but, you know, we do see, you know... It's a hard R, is what you're saying. Yes. So it's not like, it's not like you know, the, the victim gets, you know, dragged into a room and the door is slammed and then fade to black. It's like the victim is dragged into a room, the door is slammed, they're chained to a bed, you know, they're violently undressed and i won't go into like too much detail but let's put up the trigger warning and just skip over the specifics (laughs) suffice to say it's pretty unpleasant to watch which leads to leads to my second point that um it's and this is something that struck me and it's it's going to be a weird assertion to make but i'm going to make it i think i think folks will back me up it's tough to depict a vulnerable woman on screen without it being just inherently sexualized like that, that that seems to be like a default setting on video cameras. Like, oh, here's a woman in a position of weakness. Oh, oh, sorry, I had I had the sexy setting on. Let me let me switch that off and make it. <laughs> just, it's a button. Uh, yeah, it's a button you push. Uh, yeah, it's pushing it's a on bu- the HD cameras. It's a button you got to push. You got to look in the manual to how to set it off. You got to turn the ISO down, etc. But uh, so yeah, like, like I'm saying, it's. Like if you have if you have a woman cowering in a corner in a state of undress, like it like ninety nine times out of a hundred, it's going to be shot in such a way or just framed in such a way that there's some element of like aggressive sexual power behind it. And this movie completely shied away from that. Like there is nothing at all there is nothing at all sexy about the rape scene in the in this movie. And you'd think that'd be good. You'd think that would be the default for rape scenes that you know that they're not that they're not sexy. That scenes of, you know, sexual violence aren't um, you know, that there's no possible way to layer any sort of, you know, sensual subtext on top of that. And yet you don't and yet you don't always see that. So it's yeah. it's interesting that Fincher was able to accomplish that and 
make us, the viewers, feel at least a modicum of how unpleasant it must be for the actual victim to be going through for this. Well, and what now, I mean, like, but, there are many, many unpleasant scenes in this, right? Like in this book, from the beginning to this sort of climactic scene when, uh, when you know, the villain is revealed. And, yes. like, uh, it's... Uh, I mean that's it it's interesting you wrote about I mean you wrote about uh, the gays and sort of introduced the the overthinking readership to the well it maybe didn't introduce them but brought it to the conversation of overthinking and the concept of of uh you know the gays uh and sort of Laura Mulvey being the the theorist who's kind of written a lot about about the gays of film being a being a male gaze they, I wonder if yeah by gaze, you mean, just to clarify, you mean, like, the act of looking. Well, so, okay, so there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of acts of looking that is... You didn't uh, just write about the gaze. Like, I don't want anybody to <laughs> <laughs> call that there. The problem no. with Hollywood is the gaze, just the gaze <laughs> and everything. No, the, that, well, no, it's it's specifically the male gaze, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I actually realized. I actually oh. realized that. that <laughs> sorry, it's a, I wasn't. Yeah, it's a named academic subject in gender studies. I, like they I could, totally forgot. I totally forgot that those things were homophones. Look, don't be homophonic around us. G A Z E, the act yes. of looking, and there are actually there are a lot of different kinds of looking that get kind of grouped together uh, under under the heading the gaze. Characters looking at each other uh, within the diegesis of a movie, um, the camera looking, and then our looking, and kind of our sort of relationship, our, the relationship between our looking and the camera's looking. That is to say, is the camera just a proxy for us? Is it making decisions? for us and things like this and one of the you know and what and, and and anyway there is a there is a sort of uh now uh, now sort of classic argument in feminist film criticism about about the male gaze for which see laura mulvey uh we'll leave a link we'll leave a, a link in the in the show notes but it's, for, for those in the for those in the audience who aren't you know who aren't familiar with this already the, the best sort of like mo- the most accessible example of this i can think of is in transformers 3 the most recent transformers <laughs> movie uh our introduction to uh, what's her name? Uh, Shia LaBeouf's love interest, uh, Josie Josie Huntington Whitley, whatever her character's name in the movie. Our introduction to her is literally a camera shot tracking, following her, following her ass as she walks up the steps to get him out of bed. So, I mean, that, that's our introduction to her as a character. So that's an example of the camera as as male gaze. Like this, this is the asset of her that we want you to focus on. Like this is this is what you have to look at if you're going to look at her. So that's. That's an example of, you know, the camera sort of providing an interpretation or a viewpoint of a character. Yeah. And certainly it is reductive to a certain – it's not – we don't want to say that this is the only way that men ever use their eyes to look at things, obviously. Um, but that's the, sort of the, the term as it's used, right, as it's in the, uh, in the literature. So uh, if we had a better one, we'd use it. I don't want anybody to be like, well, I don't always look at a girl's butt. Sometimes I look at her face. Like, what about me? And I'll be like, first of all, you're missing the point. <laughs> Second of all, uh, we didn't make these things up. We're talking in terms of a, of a critical discourse, and we're trying to use uh, drink uh, words that, that academicians would uh, at least, you know, if they were half asleep, approve of our using. <laughs> so. so I'm on the Wikipedia page for the gays, and it, it actually says <laughs> not to be confused with gays. <laughs> you know, G- <laughs> G-A-Y-S. I did not put that there. I did not put that there. So that, that, uh, that even with the benefit of, like, seeing the different orthography, like, you can, yeah. uh, <laughs> I guess, apparently with... Wikipedia thinks a lot of people uh, need disambiguation between them. Well, well, let's 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 take it out of let's broaden it just a little bit because what this 
phenomenon always reminds me of is that famous quote from that French director that I always forget about, that French artur, where he said that it's impossible to make an anti-war movie, right? Because movies, you, movies glorify war by their very nature, right? That's not how he said it. He said it in French uh, and something along those lines, right? But it's like every you – know, you can't make a movie that makes war look bad or makes you really not want to – participate in war really because even if it's like a cautionary tale about war it's going to show shooting and awesomeness right and that's like uh, some people have taken that as a challenge and i think that there are good anti-war cinematic movies um you know like twilight of the fireflies for example but we don't want to get into that because it's the saddest thing in sad town um but like they but what is the challenge in terms of getting away from the way that you expect a movie to look at a thing, right? What are the limitations that the camera lens really places on you versus what are you taking for granted as a limitation of the camera lens because you haven't sufficiently experimented or you haven't experimented enough with sort of portioning off and sectioning off the narrative using different perspectives, using different scopes and different tones and different pacing, right? Um, I mean, uh, the, the Twilight of the Fireflies, I think that's what it's called, is, a cart- is an animated movie about... Uh, two siblings based on true story who are orphaned and made refugees in Japan during World War II. Right? And so their perspective on World War II is very different from the Band of Brothers perspective, which might be sad, but which is certainly going to glorify gunfighting to a greater degree than watching a little girl starve, potentially. Right? Uh, Grave of the Fireflies. Grave of the Fireflies. Grave of the Fireflies. So it's even sadder. Twilight of the Fireflies is when they fall in love with a vampire, and it's awkward. Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> <laughs> Grave of the Fireflies. That's right. That's right. So, so one of the other one of the other things I want to talk about with uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and this is something anyone can, anyone who's read the book can jump in on, is what we think of Lisbeth Salander, the titular Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, as Epon- a eponymous eponymous. Let's be let's be progressive. Sorry, I, I'm interrupted. <laughs> titular is fine. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's not the eponymous. I mean, if the it, it would be the eponymous girl if it, the book were called Lisbeth Salander. It, but Anyhow, fair enough. So, <laughs> what what we think of uh, Lisbeth Salander, the girl with the dragon tattoo, as a strong female character? And of course, when I say this, I'm of course referencing the very loaded term "strong female character" as brought forth by the uh, the great Shannon Molosky on, you know, a- as an article, you know, why strong female characters are bad for women on overthinking.com, the site that suggests popular culture to a level of scrutiny, it probably doesn't deserve. But the, so, uh, oh, we'll, we'll all see you next week. Call, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we're not done yet. I, I, I ended us too soon. I ended us it's too, too soon. Um, it's too, uh, j- that character is kind of on both sides. Is kind of on both sides of that thing, right? I mean, is that where you're going with this, or, or? yeah? So, I mean, I've I was I don't know. I was sort of ambivalent on on her as a strong female character, and then I, I read some other I read some other commentary uh, on uh, Tiger Beatdown, which is another sort of like third wave feminist pop culture ish site. Uh, that's that's also pretty good and. Uh, that, that that made me reconsider Elizabeth Sounder as a as a strong female character, and and one of the points, and this is sort of a conglomeration of what uh, of the points that the author uh, Sadie Doyle made, and and stuff that I've realized since is that uh, I, I mean it's it's great that we have a female protagonist who you know is strong and kicks ass, and you know deals justice against rapists and helps bring murderers to prison, or br- bring murderers to justice rather, but. On the other hand, in order to do so, she's kind of depicted as a superwoman. 
you know, she's someone who, you know, is a super genius hacker with photographic memory and is supremely capable in fistfights and, you know, isn't limited by emotions or any of that other stuff that normally trips women up, I guess, and things like that. So there's there's the extent to which you can say, yes, she's a victorious female character, but I don't know if she's a strong one because she doesn't embody she doesn't embody any sort of traditional femininity. And not that she has to, but if you are a traditionally feminine woman, you're not going to find a lot to identify with in Elizabeth Solander. I'm sorry, I read the books, but it's been a long time. She's basically Batman, right? Essentially, yes. She's a a hacker with either limitless capacity in her own right or contacts who can hook her up with any capacities that she lacks. So in, she's, also, she's also Batman in the sense that, you know, her personality is kind of formed in the crucible of this extremely traumatic childhood, uh, you know, that, and she kind of f- 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 is on the edge of, of criminality while at the same time being, you know, very moralistic herself. Um, she kind of flirts with the line of the, the, what, the underworld or the sort of dark side or the, you know, I don't know, the, the world of bats. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she, well, she she sounds a lot like more like uh, I mean, I'll, I'll nerd out anime style again because why not? Jordan isn't with us, so I have to provide the Japan quotient. She sounds like the character of Sasuke in the Naruto series because she is she is she motivated the things that she seeks to do. And I haven't read the books or seen the movies. I'm just going off your descriptions and riffing on them. Are the things that she seeks to do during the series motivated by revenge and the desire for vengeance against the specific things that happened to her, or is she applying her talents in a broader sense? in a sort of more abstract uh, upholding of like values of justice well it's sort it's the answer to that question is yes because okay. the uh, the first book is kind of a one off it's it's sort of a procedural where where there's like a central mystery to be solved but the se- the second and third book are more the the kind of the mythology of her and uh you know of uh, kind of the 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 mystery uh, you know what i mean the mystery of her um, and and get a little more into her kind of revenge or or her you know writing the wrongs that that uh, she is kind of involved in not, right, that, right, not right. that she's perpetrated but that you know have been perpetrated on her or been or she's been around the perpetration of uh, so it's so you know it's it's both but she you know I don't know she is like. She is sort of drawn into the the investigation uh, that Daniel Craig is conducting on idealistic grounds. Oh, okay. So, that okay. Is, that is to say, I want you to help me catch a killer of women. You know, I, I gotcha. mean, uh, yeah, so, the yeah. line that's in the trailer. Sorry. Go so, ahead. what one of the big one of the big dialectics and dichotomies in the Naruto series, which I was wondering, I was curious about bringing in here because it broadens the net a little bit for people who've seen this, is uh, both of the main characters had horrible tragedies in their childhood where their parents were killed, and one of them sees his primary motivation in life to sort of seek out and achieve vengeance against the people who ever killed his parents, right? And it's like, that's what I'm going to do. Whereas the other person sees the death of his parents as something that happened in, like, sort of service of the village and the greater good and, like, humanity in general and his friends and family and comes to try to channel that desire for righting the wrongs into sort of like a general social uh, social sense of responsibility. And, and the big interplay that is done through many, many flashbacks and intense, uh, you know, admittedly vaguely homoerotic scenes throughout the series is, uh, you know, is like, which is, which is more of a, of a powerful driving force and more legitimate. But one of the things that comes out of it that I'm curious whether it applies to this is that being an Avenger is positioned as something that is of great, that has, is a great metaphysical simplifier, 
right? Like it's, it's, it makes your meaning, the meaning of your life becomes very simple if you see yourself as somebody who is avenging a wrong, right? Because it doesn't really matter. Your mortality is not a question of great importance relative to the necessity of avenging this wrong that you've committed yourself to avenging, right? Like, um, if let's, let's broaden out a little bit. That actually is true of idealisms generally, right? That I'm thinking of the character in, um, in Serenity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Who's played by um, that great actor whose name is is uh, difficult. Uh, Trey Williams. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, the black Ejiofor. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, right. And he actually, he sort of talks, uh, he sort of talks about it because he's this, he's, he's not even, uh, he's not even writing a wrong. He's an agent. He's an agent of a repressive government, but you know, he's doing what he is doing, like in the name of some sort of future society in which, uh, all will be made right. And in which he, he will have no part because he's, he's sort of a monster in the name of his, in the name of sort of pursuing, uh, pursuing his his ideal and sort of taking what you say pete and applying it to the girl with the, the dragon tattoo it i mean it is it is a strong you there is a a bright line and you either are a good guy and a, or or a bad guy in in the world of this uh, okay in, in you know in the world of this series of novels that is to say you're sort of you're either sort of a helper of the do- downtrodden or uh or the vulnerable or you're an exploiter of the downtrodden and and vulnerable and there's not a lot of room uh for for the kinds of you know the kinds of ambiguities that a different genre of storytelling might might demand but i hadn't i hadn't thought of um hadn't thought of it as being uh characteristic of stories about uh vengeance or you know mm. re- revenge right like uh i hadn't really thought of that so is, is, it, is it more of a sort of post-punk upton sinclair where it's like these are the horrors that people are suffering and are like demeaning and and uh society or is it is it just there's like a mustache twirling villain well, who's tying people there, to train tracks there actually is kind of a mustache uh, <laughs> Twirling, twirling villain, but it, it's, I mean, it's, a, but he's like a, an international super criminal, you know, okay, but it's okay. um, like, uh, it, it's funny, like these, um, this is a world, the world that's depicted in, in these novels, which seems so extreme to us was like everything that's coming out about every, the biographical material that has been emerging about the author in the wake of, of his, uh, uh, you know, early death is like he was he was involved in a magazine that was a, about like the resurgence of neo-Nazism in, in Europe and was like an expose on these sort of hidden neo-Nazi movements. So he like he saw sort of extremism everywhere and he sort of saw um, he, he had a worldview that w- that was very much like. Uh, there are these bad people, you know, there are these bad people around and we, you know, we don't notice it and it's, you know, it's insidious and it's dangerous and it's, it's, um, you know, and they're, they're out there and they're, you know, they're bent on hurting, hurting you and hurting vulnerable people, uh, you know, especially. Mm-hmm. That, and that is, that is to say th- this, this quality of the novel seems to be an expression of the author's own worldview. Right, right, right. You know, so his own sense of right and wrong. Which, I mean, if you wanted to do this as the sort of, I don't know, I don't, I don't really tend to admire this kind of criticism, but you could be like, maybe he's trying to redress his own sense of right and wrong by writing this book, right? And like his own sense of the moral imperfections and the flaws of the world around him and channel that and purify that in some way by creating this heroic story. Now, what does this go back in terms of it being a woman? 
it seems like it's the kind of situations where it's 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 an iconic character who is probably going to be less than fully realized in the sense that in that sort of very very strict 19th century naturalistic sense of psychodrama that a lot of uh a lot and I don't mean psychodrama in terms of like you know I love New York or like mob wives I mean like psychodrama in terms of like you know uh you know, uh, uh, Edith Wharton, right? Like, um, or like, uh, like Chekhov, like, like, um, the fully formed method driven character story of the person who has the background that motivates their psychological actions. And it all makes sense. And there's tremendous amount of history in what the character, it sounds like there's history, what the character does, but it does seem like the character is a bit of a hero too, in like the Greek sense, right? Like, like, a force of nature, like somebody who is like Achilles, right. And is, has a history and has character depth, but also um, their power is somewhat limiting in the ability to which we can truly connect with who they are and, and see them as our, like ourselves. Um, I'm just guessing. <laughs> this is what the book is about. Or the movie. Because that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, of course. Well, it's the Socratic way of approaching movie reviews. You, you sort of have a dialogue going. And I interrupted John, who, of course, has prepared to actually talk about the movie. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll punt to you, and you can talk about that or anything else you want. <laughs> Um, no, those those are my two big points. Uh, Mark, I know you had you had something you wanted to bring up. Sure. Well, having neither read the books nor seen the movie, <laughs> um, I was like, you know, looking on IMDb to try to like think of, find something interesting to contribute to this. And uh, what caught my eye was the fact that Christopher Plummer is in this movie, um, who is a great actor, right, and has played a wide variety of roles in his long and storied career. Um, the latest being, I don't know, what does he play in this movie? Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Is he a good guy, bad guy, bystander? All of the above. He's the he's the patriarch of the uh, uh, he's yes. the patriarch of the family who gets uh, Daniel Craig to come in and solve the mystery. So it's it's um, he's actually kind of the closest thing to to an ambivalent to an ambivalent character because it's kind of like once everything is you know once the whole the truth of this this uh, once the truth of of the mystery is is sort of all uncovered. Um, it's sort of it's sort of like well do we really want this do we really want these details about our family known you know okay I mean? so those details of the plot are actually fairly inconsequential to the question I'm about to propose which is that um, if we can just do a thought experiment here we've done this before and we're thinking it where if we can imagine that Christopher Plummer's character from uh, The Sound of Music Captain Von Trapp is actually the same person that we see in uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> is there any way that we could possibly connect that character? Like somehow, like he's lived, you know, he escaped from, uh, you know, Nazi occupied Austria and abandoned his family and then had found a new life in Sweden. Uh, possibly one. Of the, uh, <laughs> there are two things that sound of music and the girl with the dragon tattoo have in common. Uh, one in both of them, Christopher Plummer is the head of a rather large family. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's a little more gender diverse in Girl the Dragon Tattoo. It's not just, you know, well, actually, well, no, like how big, like the fam- the Von Trapps in The Sound of Music, they're like, like what, five girls, four boys, or three and four, or how, how many of each? Do we know? Continue. <laughs> All right. I'll continue <laughs> while uh, engines in the background determine the answer for me. Uh, second, one of the perpetual, one of the recurring sources of embarrassment of, you know, Christopher Plummer as patriarch of the Vanger family uh, in Girl the Dragon Tattoo is, is how many of his family were at one point Nazis? Because, you know, he, he has been around since the 30s and, you know, he has an uncle who was a Nazi and 
that uncle's kids, you know, flirted with Nazism and stuff like that and so on and so forth. So there's that there's that connection with the 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 Third Reich that, you know, that Christopher Plummer's character uh, deals with in Sound of Music as well. So the third similarity is the prominent featuring of how do you solve a problem like Maria in both films? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. is it possible that his character um uh General Chang from oh, yes, Star yes, Trek Six: The Undiscovered. Yes, exactly. This is what is asking. Everyone listening to this podcast is currently asking this question. Is General Chang, the rogue uh, nationalistic Klingon commander from Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country, and of course a Shakespeare fan like Mister Plummer himself, which I think is a clue to the fact that all these characters are the same. Right. King Lear. General Chang, you know, like uh, the guy he played in A Beautiful Mind, uh, you know, the time he was a dad in that random family movie. Um, But yeah, did General Chang use a gravity slingshot to (laughs) escape photon torpedo and uh, and, and travel back and become a Klingon Nazi? And if so... (laughs) 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 Kapla, as it were. Kapla. Kapla, Fenton. Yeah. Sorry for stealing the Klingon joke, uh, Mark. I, I, I felt like you were setting it up and it needed to get done. No, no, no by all means, by all means. But there's, Ex- I mean, there's a character, I mean, the, there's a, an unanswered question that we should answer before we wrap, which is, uh, uh, which is what, do we think, what do we think of, you know, Lisbeth Salander as a, as a strong female character or as, you know, what Shana prefers in her article, which is, uh, I mean, the category that she kind of advanced, which is strong character, comma, female. And I, I... I have to say that I think that that while she does certain of the things that that China asks for, that is to say, she has hangups and contradictions and she's, you know, uh, she's she sometimes acts not in accordance with her interests. Right. That is to say, she like, uh, uh, you know, she has imperfections sometimes and and stumbles despite, you know, despite her incredible uh, her incredible skill. She's too. Uh, it's 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 what you said, John. It's it's that it's the sort of the idealization. It's that like this is a there. There's some aspect of of sort of wish fulfillment in the composition of this character as this yeah, sort of every- crusading superwoman, and also the um, just the the uh, the idea that the defining all the defining characteristics about her have to do with sexual violence and exploitation. Um, that that lead me to believe that this is not really that that this is a character that's an that's an outgrowth of of a um, of an author's political project and not really a kind of living sort of human character in her own right, right? Right. I mean, the one thing that sort of gives it away for me is that all of Elizabeth Solander's character aspects have to be accessible to a male audience. So, you know, Elizabeth Salander is sort of bisexual, but that means, you know, she sleeps with women. So that, woo, that's kind of hot. And Elizabeth Salander is, you know, she's she's comfortable with her sexuality, but only insofar as she'll sleep with the protagonist after only having known him for really a couple days. So isn't that, that, isn't that the, that's less her and that's more like Sweden, right? That's why you couldn't do this movie <laughs> in, in Massachusetts, right? Because no one gets laid in Massachusetts. Am I right? Well, it's it's been a chronic issue. We have committed into it, but uh, <laughs> uh. look, uh, like all I want to know is that when they make the version that's in Massachusetts, is she wearing the pants with the whales on them? Because that and is she? Uh, that's a very local color joke that no one's. Never mind. 
she wearing her Nantucket Reds. That's all that really matters. <laughs> so, um, so earlier we said that this movie is a hard R, but in fact, the Massachusetts version, of, uh, it would be what a hard R. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't Wham. think we can get any worse than that. So we should probably just leave it there. Uh, welcome to 2012, Overthinkers. It's going to be a great year for all of us. I, you know, I just know it. We hope that you I have nowhere to go but up from here. <laughs> We want to hear what you think, so if you want to add to the conversation about uh, Elizabeth Salander as a strong female character or about the, uh, the male gaze, uh, the difference between eponymous and titular... Uh, and your own, uh, what you think of our? Oh, I want to know if you watch uh, if you watch TV with a laptop in your lap, or if or like a tablet in your lap, and you're you know constantly going while you uh, while you watch those movies. Uh, you can uh, email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com. You can call two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Hold the phone up to the concert that you're at the backstage at, and tell us that you've just found the new sound that we're looking for. Or you can do what you'll probably do, which is leave a uh, comment in the great conversations that happen on the show notes on the site. So uh, here's to a great 2012 for us all. Until next week, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It solve a problem like Maria. Chicks, Nazis, and mustache-twirling villains. Unsolved mysteries and really perverted killings. <laughs> Daniel Craig in a serial killer's basement tied up with strings. Oh, These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just can't wait to watch the girl with the Wes Welker tattoo. It's gonna be my first <laughs>